Nick, and uh, thank you to the elders for the invitation to preach here. It's really always a privilege, and uh, we hold Red Point Church deep in our hearts, um, having spent a number of years here, having our kids here, and um, just a real incredible partnership and special uh, time that we have enjoyed together over the years. Um, also, I want to just extend my thanks to you, Red Point Church, for the hospitality and the hosting during the conference um, bringing a team from Mauritius for the first time. We've done that and just been incredible how we've been blessed and served and um, just uh, um, hosted and uh, really appreciate that gift happening here in Redpoint Church. Um, also, I just want to highlight you, Bram, if I can, where are you, Bram? Um, I met you, I think, properly this week for the first time and chatted a bit, but I heard your name long ago. And um, I feel just to encourage you that your ministry extends way beyond where you think. Because I heard your name in Mauritius. I heard it from my kids who've loved uh, passing through your home, I think on the way to a mission or on the way back from mission or together with you on mission. And I just want to thank you for creating a space that my kids have enjoyed being in. And I really believe that whatever the fruit of your ministry is locally, that there are also many people that will go out that have been touched by you that will make a difference somewhere in the world. And so thank you, Brian, for serving the church in the way that you do. This morning, I'm going to just, uh, I've got three stories to tell. I've got some biblical principles to share. And then I've got, uh, hopefully, a prayer and uh, an encouragement for you. Um, it ties in with what Nick has been saying about God calling us. Um, I've called my preacher commissioning moment. There's something that happens sometimes in our lives. It's a moment in time where God calls us to something more. Sometimes it's fresh and new. Sometimes it's a reinforcement of what he's spoken over our lives in the past. Sometimes it's restoration from failure or from drifting or wandering away from God. But he brings us to these places where there's an unmistakable moment in our lives and an opportunity to respond to God by faith for his purposes and his will to unfold in our lives. My first story comes from the story of David in the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, the young man who was to become king of Israel. And uh, it's a well-known story, but I'll just read a few verses from 1 Samuel 16 verse 4 onwards. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The same thing happens through all of Jesse's sons. And then verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, for we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Can you picture yourself in that moment where Samuel arrives in the village and that he's uh, there for a feast? He's calling for a feast. It's there for that reason, but there's another reason underneath that nobody knows. Samuel is there because God has instructed him to find and anoint the next king of Israel, but nobody knows that. 
there in Jesse's town and in Jesse's home. All they know is that Samuel is here. He says he comes in peace and we're going to share a meal together. Consecrate ourselves unto God. He goes through this process, one son after the other after the other, and finally he gets to David, and that's when he knows this is the one that he is to anoint with oil. Imagine being in David's shoes, out there in the fields with your sheep day after day. This is your place. This is where you spend your time. This is your calling. For now, he's the one who's caring for the family flock, the sheep of that household. He's the one who has to rescue them from harm when the lion comes or the bear comes. The Bible says he, or he chased after them and he struck them and he rescued the sheep from their hand. This is the sphere of David's influence. It's this flock of sheep that belongs to the family. We know that David is a worshiper. You read all through his Psalms and the, the songs of David through the pages of the Bible and we find that David is a worshiping man. I can imagine him worshiping out there in the fields with his sheep. His voice to God's ear alone. No congregation, no temple, no accompanying instruments, just David worshiping before his God. That's his sphere, that's where he dwells, that's what he is um, given to. And then this day arrives and Samuel calls for him. And he comes into that house probably not knowing what exactly to expect, not knowing how the story will unfold and what will happen to him and why he's even there. But Samuel anoints him as king, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him from that time on. And David becomes a person of incredible influence. Right in that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you keep reading, you'll find that he begins to play his harp for King Saul. He's playing his instrument in the palace. Just a few verses before, he's out in the fields on his own, singing his own songs to God alone. The next thing... He's worshiping to bring peace and relief to a king who's tormented by an evil spirit. As you continue to read into the next chapter, he slays Goliath and he's promoted to a high-ranking position in the army. One place, one day, he's just in one place, he's stewarding that which is under his care, that which God has given him, a flock of sheep. Almost like the next day, he's moved into a different space. God has taken him from the fringes, from isolation, from the outside right into the center of his kingdom's work. My next story is the Apostle Paul. It's Saul when we meet him here. And uh, probably have heard of the story of Saul's conversion where he turns from a persecutor into a follower of Jesus as he's blinded by that light on the road to Damascus, um, led by the hand into the city, Everything he believed, everything he was pushing towards, the destruction of the Christian faith, suddenly questioned and out of, um, out of himself. It's just not where he was. And he goes into the city of Damascus, and a disciple named Ananias prays for him. It's in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Incredible commission. Amazing call of God. This voice of God over his life. You will be my witness to Gentiles and to their kings. I have a big role for you to play, Saul. I've got something substantial for you in my kingdom. I have my, my work mapped out for you. There's something for you to do. He gets this incredible commission and everything kind of goes a little bit south from there. He starts to preach in uh, Damascus, but they don't like it, and he's threatened, his life is threatened. 
they lower him out of the wall with a basket and he kind of, he heads into Jerusalem for a short time and even there his life is threatened and they ship him off to Tarsus, which is his hometown. Saul gets saved in AD 33, it's AD 40 by the time we hear of him again, seven years from that call of God, that great commission, that sense of incredible destiny and purpose about his life, suddenly he's hidden away for seven years. We don't hear of him. He's not written any books, no letters from that time period that are recorded in your Bible, no preaching invitations, no sense of kind of any kind of influence over his life. He's hidden away in the area of his birth, and this is where God has him even after his great and incredible commission. AD 40, Barnabas comes to Antioch and sees this amazing work of God that's happening in the church, the grace of God, and he thinks we need Paul here, Saul. So he goes and fetches him. And suddenly, Saul's life changes. Because from being hidden away for seven years, waiting for something to happen in that commission, he's now thrust into the center of what God is doing. That Antioch base becomes the central hub of Christian activity and missionary work for the next years to come. And as he begins to preach and to teach there and to share the message that he's been preparing over the last seven years, there comes a time where that group begins to pray and to fast and Saul and Barnabas are thrust out into that mission. Begins to fulfill the call of God upon his life almost immediately. Seven years of nothing and then suddenly everything. Prior to that time, the gospel seems to be spreading mostly by persecution. Believers are scattered and they preach the gospel where they go and something begins to happen and the apostles come in to help establish and to get it in order. But from this time, this prayer meeting in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, there is something that happens where the apostles are pioneering all the work. They are, they are taking the gospel out. They are the ones advancing the purposes of God. They are planting churches. They are sharing that message. They are raising up leaders. Paul is in the center of the advance of the kingdom of God after seven years of waiting in isolation and the fringes. My last story before I make some points is the young man, John Mark. I love John Mark. He's a, he's a flawed but, um, but good man in the Bible. And uh, he actually is present quite a bit in the Bible, though we don't always see exactly who it is. In uh, Mark chapter 14 and verse 51, we're told that at the time Jesus was arrested, a young man, it says, kind of was there and uh, uh, he was wearing nothing but a linen garment and was following Jesus. But when they seized him, he dropped his garment and kind of ran for his life. And commentators say that's probably John Mark. There's an introduction there to the man. There's no other reason for that little story to be in the Bible unless that's perhaps him, the one who's writing this book on Peter's behalf. John Mark's house was one of the central homes in Jerusalem where the church was kind of expanding and growing and, and beginning its work. It's a house where there was a prayer meeting when Peter was arrested. Um, you can read about it in Acts chapter 12. Um, there's, uh, uh, Peter's arrested, an angel sets him free, and he makes his way to John Mark's house, where the disciples are gathered praying. And he's knocking on the door, knocking on the door, they're praying for his release, and Peter's at the door going, hey, I'm here. <laughs> and they said, no, it can't be Peter, let's carry on praying. Uh, but eventually they let him in, and uh, Peter is restored to the disciples before kind of moving on from there. And this, the point is that John Mark is kind of right in the hub of what's happening in the early days of Christianity. 
the early days of the church in Jerusalem. But what happens is there's a bit of a calamity in John Mark's life because when Paul, Saul, and Barnabas are sent out on that mission, John Mark is with them, but he doesn't last the trip. Um, Acts 13 verse 4, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. It's not even a full sentence in the Bible. It's just a little phrase where John left them to return to Jerusalem. But that moment was a moment that totally influenced that apostolic union between Saul and Barnabas and the effectiveness that they were sharing as a team. It was a failure. Saul felt deserted. He felt that John Mark hadn't fulfilled his duty, that he hadn't kept with them while they were serving and pressing forward with the kingdom of God. And when they wanted to go out on another mission trip and Barnabas said, let's take John Mark, Saul said, I'm, I'm, we're not taking him. I will not take that guy because he let us down last time and I don't know what's going to happen out there. We need people we can trust with us. The sense of, of um, deep hurt maybe or kind of a disappointment and, and uh, not a desire to go back to that place again. Can you imagine being that person? This is public. It's public. Saul and Barnabas part company. They go different ways. Everyone in the church knows what happens. Saul didn't want to take John Mark. Barnabas has taken John Mark. Everyone draws their own opinion or their own conclusions. And, but one thing is true. Everyone knows the name John Mark. Introduce yourself. Hey, I'm John Mark. Nice to meet you. Are you the John Mark that, that Saul didn't want to take on the mission? Well, yeah, I'm that guy, you know. There's a stigma attached to that. It's probably an effect on his ministry. Goes to some place and wants to preach the gospel, but someone there thinks, no, I'm, I'm like a fan of Saul and his ministry. You let Saul down. I, I, I'm not going to hear what you have to say. There's an impact on his life and this sense of failure that's happened to him. And he becomes a little isolated. And I'm, I may be reading a little into the text, but when we look at the outworking of the, of the outreach and the missionary program, we find Saul and Silas, Paul and his teams advancing in many different areas and, and doing many things, planting churches, expanding. We don't hear a lot about Barnabas and John Mark, and it seems like they're a little bit more on the fringes while what's happening with Saul is happening in the center. It's the cutting edge, the thrust. And that can happen. We have the isolation of failure. We get on the edges because somehow we've been tainted by failure and we, we're not part of the hub of what's happening and maybe we feel we can't be. But later on, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, the last book that Paul writes that's recorded in our Bible, only Luke is with me, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. From the fringes, from the outside, from the isolation of failure, bring that guy Jean-Marc back into the center of what I'm doing because the gospel needs to advance and we need his help. Amazing stories. My theme is that that's, that theme of being in isolation and coming to a place where God calls us and we begin to fulfill the things that he has for our lives. That isolation can come just because we're stewarding the area that he's given us, like David. Nothing doing, nothing wrong, just stewarding what he's given us. But suddenly he decides the time has come for you to have more influence and to go forward in a new way. 
It can be an isolation that comes from preparation. I called you. I called you. I gave you an amazing word. I prophesied over your life and then nothing. And you begin to wonder, well, what is God doing? And is there any hope of this call being fulfilled or the isolation of failure and the return to the center of God's work? A few points to make, biblical principles. Number one, faithfulness with little leads to trust with much. Faithfulness with little leads to trust with much. The story of David reminds me of this biblical principle. God is a God who gives things to us to steward. And as we steward those things, he rewards those who steward things well with increased trust. Probably know the parable that Jesus told about this very principle where he spoke about the homeowner or the master giving uh, bags of gold to his servants. Five bags to one, two bags to one, one bag to the other. And he, he instructs them to put it to use while he goes out and comes back from his business. And uh, when he comes back, the key thing is what did you do with what he put in, his, in your hands? In um, Matthew 25, 21, the master replied, to the one who'd done well with his things, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Been faithful with few things. Been faithful with the things that I've put in your hand. You've been faithful with what you've been tasked with. And I want to give you more. I want to extend the sphere of your influence. I want to enable you, empower you to do much more for me than you've been able to do in the past. This is what happened to David. I'm just managing my sheep, you know. Just looking after the sheep that are under my care. Fighting the predators because that's what a good shepherd does. Just making sure they're healthy. Taking them to good food. Making sure they're well watered. Just caring for those sheep that God's put in my hands. I'm worshiping God. I'm praising Him. I'm thanking Him for what He's done in my life. I'm taking good care of those things that God has given me. And there comes a time when out of that good care, Samuel sends for David and says, this is the one. Psalm 78, verse 70, says this, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. This was God's plan. I took you from the sheepfold. You did so well with that which I put in your hands and now I'm giving you more. Maybe you feel this morning like you're just doing the best you can with what God has given you. You might not even have any ambition. You might think, well, this is what I have from God and this is what I'm gonna do. I don't know if David had any ambition to be king. Probably not because Saul was king and Jonathan was his son. There's no kind of um, inclination of why that would come into his mind. Why, you know, I want to be king. No, I'm just doing the work that God has given me to do. Whatever it is, faithfully, truthfully, honestly, with all my energy and with my hard work and with zeal and with integrity, whether people can see or people can't see. Whether anyone knows about the sheep that went missing because of the lion or not, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to take care of the things that God has put in my hands. And I know at one stage, God will open his hands and place more under my responsibility. Number two is the call of God 
never fails. The call of God never fails. The story of Saul and his disappearance for seven years just reminds me of that principle which comes out so often in the Bible. God often speaks, and it's sometimes long before that word comes into fulfillment. Seven years is probably even one of the shorter ones. Take Moses, this special boy saved from the the Nile River. If you could take Moses' life and consider what God had destined him for, I mean, his life probably couldn't have gone much more in the other direction, the opposite direction of God's call over his life for a long, long time. He gets taken into the princess of Egypt's home. He gets raised under the Egyptian customs and values. He could have lost his call right there, lost connection with his Israelite heritage, lost identity with those who were in slavery in the nation at that time. Could have been robbed of the call all the way through that upbringing in Egypt's household. Gets to the time where he comes out and he wants to take matters into his own hand. Kills an Egyptian. Tries to settle a dispute between the Israelites. And the next thing you know, he's running for his life. Tried to do something to fulfill the call upon his life, but didn't do it well. Got all messed up. And now he's running for his life. And then he spends 40 years in the wilderness, isn't it? 40? 40 years. Caring for a few sheep. It's a common theme in the Bible. (laughs) And out there, when there is no sign, nothing to indicate that the call of God is coming to fulfillment in Moses' life, no sense of imminence, just 40 years of, okay, well, this is my lot. Suddenly, there's a burning bush. And the word of God comes back to Moses. That time is over. The season is over. The isolation is over. Now you're going to set my people free. I think even the coming of Jesus fits this principle. It's delayed. You read through the pages of the Bible, put yourself in the, in the heart of the Jewish nation, listening to those prophetic words, hearing the words of Isaiah being read out in the synagogue, thinking about this Messiah that's going to come one day, come one day, come one day, constantly hoping for something in the future. At the time that Jesus comes, the Israelite nation is under subjugation. They're under the Roman Empire's rule. The religious leaders are harsh and overbearing. There's no sense of spiritual life in the nation. There's no indication, nothing to suggest. Now is the time that God will fulfill his purposes. And suddenly Jesus comes onto the scene. His call, his purposes will never ever fail. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, But when the time When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, Jesus. I'm sure many of us can think of experiences in our own lives where we've kind of experienced delay. Sometimes it's, you know, um, hard and difficult. Sometimes it's maybe just a little bit of our own insecurity or things that we're kind of wrestling with. I remember being an elder here in this church and... uh, and, um, you know, kind of thinking about church planting, looking at church planting, all of the nations of the world passing through this building, many conferences, calls to go out and follow Jesus. And I remember early on in my time as a disciple thinking, I think three years and then I'll be out of here. 
And it's Nick's fault because he preached from Daniel in one of the elders' meetings, and Daniel was prepared for two, three years, and then they were given their kind of roles of responsibility. There were a few other things. I wrote Nick an email. Hey, Nick, I think three years, that's my time, and I'm out of 10 years. I was on eldership here. I think 10 years. I thought three, you know. I thought like just getting prepared, and I'm on my way. When I used to preach here on a Sunday, from time to time, I used to come to this building on a Saturday afternoon to, to practice my preach. Preach to these empty chairs that you're sitting on. My whole sermon. Break down in tears, emotion, <laughs> crying out to God. I walked through all these chairs. I put my hand on every one of them. Prayed for you, sitting in that chair now. Somehow, God would do something with your life. The call of God is unstoppable. God will fulfill his purposes as in his will. Short time or long, hard time or easy, what God says he's going to do, he will do. And he will take your life and my life and do something more beautiful with it than we can ever ask or imagine. More significant than anything we could possibly do on our own. More effective, more fruitful. Because when God fulfills his word, there's something beautiful that happens in our lives. Number three, we need the Holy Spirit's anointing. We need the Holy Spirit's anointing. The story of David, you see that idea coming through because he's anointed and it says that he's um, full of this, from that time on, he changes. You know, there's something that happens in David's life when he's anointed to be king. There's also something of that idea in the prayer meeting with Saul and Barnabas. And those pastors and teachers are praying. The church at Antioch is praying. They've got the sense that God wants them to go on mission. God wants them to take teams out and to spread the gospel message and to plant churches in other nations. But what they don't do is they don't just say, okay, well, that's what we feel. Let's go. Let's, you know, kind of pack up our bags. Let's take the practical steps. Let's find the port, catch the boat. Let's do God, there's a moment where they lay hands on those men. There's a moment in that prayer meeting where they acknowledge the fact that we will never, ever, ever achieve what God wants us to do unless He is empowering us, unless He is helping us. You can even have the Word of God. You can know that you're going to do the right thing, that you're in His purposes and in His will. But if you go out and you're not relying on, not dependent on, not seeking, the presence of God in your life, the ability of God to do the work that he's called us to do, I don't think we'll ever be effective. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives day by day fully to be able to do the work that God has called us to do. As I mentioned up until that time, the, the gospel has been spreading mostly through persecution, not only because Peter went to Cornelius' house and there was that dramatic moment where the Gentiles received the gospel, but a lot of that act story in the early part is just people getting persecuted, people going to this place, Samaria hearing the gospel, the apostles going there, Antioch hearing the gospel, the apostles going there. It's all a sense of, of kind of responding to things that are already happening. Now, there's a pioneering spirit. There's a need for these men to go out on their own initiative with faith to break through the barriers and to plant churches in areas that are hostile to the gospel. They can't do it unless the anointing of God comes upon them. Unless they're walking in the power of God's spirit, unless they're 
living in the presence of God. Consider all of the the people that you admire in the scriptures, what they did for God and how they did it and how they were empowered to do it. Think of Jesus himself, beginning his ministry after 30 years. He's uh, fast in the wilderness and coming back and preaching his first sermon in the synagogue. And where does he go? The prophet Isaiah. And what does he read? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It's the start of Jesus' ministry is in that place, on that basis, quoting that scripture. When the church had to appoint deacons, Acts chapter 6, what were they instructed to look for? Find people who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Find this kind of person. If you're going to entrust leadership, stewardship to people in the church, if you're going to place responsibility in the hands of someone in this community, find someone who is wise and full of the Spirit of God. It doesn't say find someone who's successful. It doesn't say find someone who's confident. It doesn't say find someone who's an extrovert. Find someone who's good with words. Find someone, all those things are helpful. But for the deacons that were to be appointed in the church of Jerusalem, find someone full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. When Stephen was stoned as the first Christian martyr, at the beginning of that story, it says that they, he had a face like an angel. And at the end, when they were about to take his life, he was filled with the Holy Spirit as he looked up to heaven. Stephen, as he proclaims his final message, declares this incredible wisdom about Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, it's in Ephesians 3, I think, includes this phrase, that they might be strengthened with power in their spirit, in their inner being. I don't know about you, but I I know I need the power of the Spirit in my life. I know that I'm not capable (laughs) of doing what I'm called to do without the power of the Spirit in my life. We need that. The constant sense of revelation, constant sense of God's presence at work in our life. Number four, failure is not final. Failure is not final. Fear of failure, story of John Marcus. It's actually a crippling, crippling problem for many people, the fear of failure. Cripples us. You kind of feel that somehow if you mess up or lose your way, somehow that there's a label that comes over your life and like that's it, you know. Can't like imagine like letting Jesus down, letting a, a leader down, a friend down, and this sense of failure. But, um, you know, we all also have different, um, even definitions of what failure is. One person can miss their quiet time this morning and feel completely overwhelmed with like, oh man, I really messed that up. Someone else cannot read their Bible for a month and like have a small twinge of, yeah, I really need to do better, you know? There's like a sense in which, like we, like the definition of failure is, is like it can weigh on us, our own idea of what is bad or what needs to be better. But I think for me, what is critical is our response to failure. Our response to failure is as important as the failure itself. 
some mistake we made, some sin we've committed or ministry we've walked away from, we can carry it around with us constantly. Affects our relationship with God, affects our relationship with people, affects our faith. We can't really believe, we, can't, we don't have the confidence to take another step because we're carrying around with us this sense in which we have failed. And I think that there are two ways to respond to failure which are highly unhelpful. Don't do these two things. Number one, you think, well, I, I, can't, I can't fail. And so you never take responsibility for anything. You're always blaming somebody else. Can't, you know, you, I just, it's too hard. It's too big a thing for you to have failed. And so you find a reason to never have to take responsibility for it. You get hard. You get critical of others. You get kind of harsh with God even. Go, how did you put me in that position? You know. Like, how can, how can this be? Or else you sink into a pity, self-pity, despair. Ah, oh, failed. I'll never ever do something useful for God. Two wrong ways to respond to failure in our lives. But let me ask you a question. Have you never let your parents down? I mean, all of us have got parents here in the room, right? <laughs> have you ever let your parents down? you ever had your relationship with your mom, dad, kind of affected by something you did? I have. remember a few occasions that my mom let me know that I'd let her down. One thing, I think I've shared it here before, but I went through a stage in my teenage years where I was very sarcastic. Very. And my mom was a soft target. I used to be sarcastic with her all the time. She said to me, just... If you're going to have anything nice to say to me, don't say anything at all. I don't want to hear your voice, basically. I let her down. Felt bad about it. Can't take it back. Can't take those words back ever. It's done. But my relationship with my mom is beautiful and sweet. Why? Because parents don't want their children to suffer under the, the, the failure for all of their lives. They want us to train us. They want us to learn from it. They want us to thrust us out so we fulfill all our potential. I think my mom's my biggest fan. She, she wants me to succeed. She prays for me. She's desperate, in a sense, for her spiritual kind of fruit that comes through my life. It's not that failure kind of, kind of permanently damages my relationship with my mom. I know that there are things that we can do that are constantly grievous to God or to others, and we, we need to avoid that. But I'm talking about letting failure dominate your life. It shouldn't. should let ourselves be restored, come to grace with God. I'm so glad that the story of John Mark's recorded in the Bible. I'm so God, glad that he endured the shame, the stigma of being the one that caused that apostolic team to break up. Imagine if it was me. Chris and Nick are working together apostolically, doing mission, achieving great things. And something happens and it's, it's because of me. Chris and Nick have a great argument and they, they stop working together. Part company, go other ways. I'm so grateful that John Mark allowed that incident to sh- shape his life. Somehow it affected him in a way that he was an effective minister to Jesus And he was called upon to come and stand in the center of God's work 
to advance the kingdom of God by the time the story was complete. I'm so glad he didn't get hard-hearted. Blame Saul. I'm so glad we don't hear about that in the scriptures. Maybe he struggled with it. Maybe there was some things he said or things that he, he wrote to others, but it's not there in the, in the Bible text or in the story, and I'm so glad it didn't become the character of his life. Hard man. Just not wanting to get hurt again, pushing away Saul, kind of criticizing others, criticizing Saul's leadership. You know, Saul's got no compassion, Paul, got no grace for people. Such a hard man, stubborn man. I wouldn't work with Paul if I was you. Didn't let that become the character of his life. Didn't let himself sink into a hole of self-pity. Somehow, he got himself to a place where he was an effective servant of the Lord Jesus, regardless of his failure. Amazing stories that we're reading this morning and lessons that we're learning. Story of David, of this young man stewarding what's under his care and suddenly coming to a moment of increased influence by the hand of God at a moment in time. Looking at the life of Saul, someone called by God and then hidden away, waiting, waiting, waiting. When, God, will you fulfill your purposes to my life? And then getting called to come to Antioch. The story of John Mark failing, creating a division in the body of Christ and getting isolated on the fringes of the kingdom of God while the main work is happening through Asia and towards Rome and, but in the end pulled back into the center of God's mission. In these three stories there was a human voice that came to those people. We don't know who called David but Jesse, David's father, sent for David, probably a servant. Went out there and had to call David to come back to the feast. For Saul, it was Barnabas. Barnabas went to find him. Come, Saul, we need your help here in Antioch. And for John Mark, it was Timothy. Timothy, go and fetch John Mark. I need him here in the center of my mission. There's a human voice that's kind of bringing the message, but there's a divine voice that's at the back, that's saying, now is the time. There's a human voice that's passing on, you know, just passing on a message, come, come back to the center, come out of isolation, but there's a divine voice from heaven that is actually making it happen, that's changing things, shaping your space in which you live, the influence that you have, opening doors for ministry, giving breakthrough opportunities for the king and for his kingdom to advance. And this morning I'm trying to be a, an echo of those human voices that went out to fetch those three men, David, Saul, and John Mark. And I'm trusting that if God is ministering to you today, that there's a divine voice that is resonating in your heart. Could be that you were at the conference this week and something happened in one of the sessions and you feel stirred. God is doing something in my life could be just 
something that comes out of what I've shared this morning. Could be a, a moment that we had together in worship. Could be the prayer meeting on Thursday night where we cried out for Zimbabwe and something happened in you and you thought, I want to participate in the global mission project. I don't know what it is for you, but my prayer is that if God is speaking to you today, that you will respond with faith. Open your heart, open your hands, receive what he's placing into you and move forward in the name of God of Jesus. I wonder if we can stand together. Is it okay if I pray for us? Um, when I was preparing and just thinking about what God may be doing in people's lives and reading those stories, in the book of Samuel, it's amazing what Samuel says. He says, we, we're not going to sit down until that young man comes. And that's actually why I've asked you to stand this morning because I feel like God may be speaking to some people and calling them specifically this morning, but I feel like God's calling all of us to stand and witness and pray for God's unfolding work in people's lives. And I know it might be a little awkward for you and might not... Um, know how to respond always, but I want to invite you to come down to the front if God is speaking to you. If God is speaking to you through the conference or something that you've heard or God is speaking to you through these stories or something is happening in your life, you're thinking, okay, that's me. The, the season is changing. Something is happening and I need to respond to God. While we stand in the presence of the community, in the presence of the church, with the witness of us, by the power of the Spirit, we want to pray that God takes you into that space that He's prepared for you. So maybe we can just close our eyes and just position ourselves before God so that we're not focused on people moving around us. But if you want to respond to this message, you feel God is giving you an increased stewardship. You feel like God is bringing you to a place to fulfill His call upon your life. You feel like there's restoration from failure for you this morning. Won't you come down and join me in the front? Thank you.